Hi, I'm Vashi Kapelos, and welcome to the West Block podcast for Sunday, February 4th. On the show this week, Alberta's Premier is calling on the federal government to step up and show leadership on the pipeline showdown between her province and BC. So, will the feds intervene to ease tensions in the West? Then, the Prime Minister heads south of the border later this week to amp up the NAFTA charm offensive before negotiations resume in Mexico. But is there more the government should be doing? Former U.S. Ambassador Bruce Heyman weighs in. Plus, a major offensive in northern Syria by the Turkish military threatens the alliance to fight ISIS and relations within NATO. We'll ask Turkey's ambassador what his country's endgame really is. But first, saber-rattling. That's how B.C. Premier John Horgan described the latest threats from Alberta's Premier and his neighbour, Rachel Notley. The heated exchange came after B.C. proposed new restrictions on oil shipments via pipelines. So how do we get to this point? Here's your West Block Primer. It's the West versus the West, and Justin Trudeau is caught in the middle of it all. Why can't we build pipeline from here? Edmontonians pleading with the Prime Minister at a town hall last week, asking him to make sure the Kinder Morgan Trans Mountain Pipeline extension actually gets built. We have every right uh, to protect our marine environment and our economy. BC is promising to do everything it can to stop that from happening, and Alberta is fighting back. We have formally suspended all talks to do with the purchasing of electricity from BC. So what should the feds do? Or maybe the real question, what can they do? And joining me now is Natural Resources Minister Jim Carr. Minister Carr, nice to see you again. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure, always good to be with you. Last week, the Prime Minister in Alberta, sir, said that, quote, we are going to get that pipeline built. How exactly Mm -hmm. is the federal government going to do that? Well, it's a, an approved pipeline from the government of Canada. There was a long period of consultation, both by the National Energy Board and then by the government itself. There was a ministerial panel that crisscrossed a couple of provinces, went up and down the line, heard from literally hundreds of people and online tens of thousands. And after all of that consultation, the government of Canada concluded that the Trans Mountain expansion was in Canada's interests. We believed that then and we believe it now. Why is it in Canada's interests? Because it will uh, create thousands of good jobs, because it will expand our export markets beyond the United States, uh, because we at the same time announced a $1.5 billion ocean protection plan that's world class. We have now co-developed with Indigenous communities a monitoring advisory committee up and down the line during construction. So we believe for all of those reasons that it's good for Canada. Given though what we heard from BC last week, do you admit that there's a difference between approving the pipeline and it actually getting built? Well, uh, there are 157 conditions that the National Energy Board applied to the approval of the pipeline. Uh, Those conditions are now in the process of being met. Uh, If there are attempts at unusual or unnecessary delay, uh, the National Energy Board has the tools available to make sure that uh, these decisions are made in a timely way. The Government of Canada actually intervened in a motion uh, to help ensure that that happens. So from our perspective, this is an approved pipeline. If the conditions are met, it should be built. So what qualifies first on that as an untimely delay, and what are the specific tools available to the NEB? 
Well, the NEB has its own process, uh, and it will uh, determine how it applies its process to particular conditions. Uh, Kinder Morgan has said to the National Energy Board that uh, it wants to ensure that there are not unnecessary delays. It has given motions to the National Energy Board to consider. The National Energy Board has already dealt with two of them one during which the government of Canada itself intervened. It's in our interests, it's in Canada's interests, to ensure that there are, there are not unnecessary delays. So I understand that it's the NEB that decides, but as you mentioned, the federal government could potentially play a role in intervening. What would be the trigger? I guess what, for you, defines untimely or unnecessary delay in the Kinder Morgan case? Well, you know, we'll have to see how this unfolds. People are asking a lot of hypothetical questions. What the government of British Columbia has done is announced a consultation. Well, uh, they're entitled to announce a consultation. We have had ours, and our consultation, as I mentioned a minute ago, was absolutely thorough, it was broad, and it was deep, and it led Canada to a conclusion. So uh, we believe that uh, all of the consultation necessary from the federal perspective has been done. We will judge what the British Columbia government does by the action that it takes. So far, it says it's going to talk to people. It has the right to talk to people. I guess the threat, though, prompted a counter threat from Alberta. What do you, as you know, part of the federal government, feel is your responsibility is there a responsibility of the federal government into in wading into this sort of provincial battle that's ensuing? Uh, the government of Alberta is elected to look after the interests of Alberta. The same is true of the government of British Columbia, which has as a primary goal to look after the interests of British Columbia as they see them. Our job is to look after the interests of the whole country not one region, not one province. And in the judgment of the government of Canada, that's what we're doing by approving this pipeline. We speak for the entire country and what we believe to be in the interests of all Canadians. And we've done that. Do you agree with Premier Notley's assessment that this isn't a fight between BC and Alberta, it's a fight between Canada and BC? Or do you think well, that's taking it too not, far? Well, it's just not productive to say these are the principles uh, in a fight. These are the combatants. Uh, it's our job to protect the interests of the country. Uh, and in a federation such as ours, there will be occasions, we could all name a lot of them, uh, when provinces don't agree with each other, when provinces don't agree with the national government. But ultimately, when it comes to major energy infrastructure, it's the government of Canada uh, who has the authority to make these decisions, and we are acting in the national interest. And ultimately, in our system, and I don't know a better one, uh, the people of Canada will tell us in the traditional way whether or not we've made good judgments. Are there options available to your government outside of the process you described uh, involving the NEB and the NEB intervening and maybe the feds intervening through the NEB? Is there anything outside that that your government is considering right now? Well, Vashi, you say options. Options to respond to what? Uh, what we're responding to now is a British Columbia idea to consult British Columbians about an assortment of issues, issues that we have already discussed with Canadians for many, many months, in the case of some of these issues, many years. So we're satisfied uh, that the period of consultation is over. And from the perspective of Canada, we're ready for there to be real action on the uh, building and construction of this very important pipeline. 
at the same time to remind Canadians that a $1.5 billion investment in the Ocean Protection Plan, the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions, the development of our economy and the creation of good jobs can't be separated from environmental stewardship. The environment and the economy go hand in hand. Okay, thanks for your time, Minister Carr. My pleasure. The next round of NAFTA negotiations is set to start in Mexico later this month. And later this week, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau heads to the U.S. for another round of meetings with governors and business leaders to try and boost support for a deal. So is the approach working or is there room for improvement? And joining me now from Chicago to discuss all that is former U.S. Ambassador to Canada, Bruce Heyman. Mr. Heyman, pleasure to have you on the show. Good to be here. I wanted to ask you, the tone coming out of the last round of NAFTA negotiations seemed pretty optimistic, I think at least relatively speaking, compared to previous rounds. Do you share that sense? And what should we as Canadians read into that if you do? Well, you know, part of what happens in this uh, uh, series of trade negotiations, it's, uh, there's a bit of theatrics. Um, trade negotiations tend to take a lot longer than people think. And people stake positions out and uh, they tend to move over a period of time. I wouldn't look at any one day or any one of these sessions to get really excited or really depressed or think it's uh, you know, off the rails or it's moving smoothly. You know, unfortunately, this is a, it's gonna take a while and uh, I'm just happy everybody's still at the table with all the threats that have been made from the U.S. perspective that um, my biggest fear is uh, the U.S. in particular gets up and walks away uh, based on the threats of the president. Uh, other than that, I think that it seems to be moving along as, as I've seen in prior uh, trade negotiations. You mentioned those threats and the fear of the U.S. walking away. How close to, re you know, how realistic a, pers uh, a perspective is that? I would say based on rationality, it would be not uh, at all close. Uh, economically, um, the relationship we have with uh, Canada and Mexico and Canada, which I know so well, is so important to the United States. And, you know, I believe NAFTA over a period of time have created jobs on both sides of the border, enhanced GDP growth, um, really improved ourselves not only on a trading basis, but geopolitically. The, the problem is that the president has made various threats uh, over this last year and held up to them. He walked away, quit. Uh, climate change in Paris Accord. He walked away from TPP. He walked away from um, the youth in DACA. And so quitting uh, seems to be a mode that the president tends to do when the negotiations get tough or he doesn't believe that uh, the U.S. should be in the realm that they're in. And he's threatened this with NAFTA. So um, my fear is, uh, you know, we have to take him seriously because he's demonstrated the, you know, desire and ability to walk away from things. So part of the, uh, I guess, sort of way in which our government is approaching that is to not just appeal to the president, but spread, you know, have this massive charm offensive across the U.S. And, and the prime minister to that effect is heading south of the border next week. And I understand you will be meeting with him. Is that correct? Well, I'm going to try to attend. I will be in Mexico City in meetings on uh, when he's in Chicago, but I'm going to try to connect uh, uh, with the you know, the prime minister's team and listen to him and his speech out on the West Coast. So that's the goal right now. Um, but, I, you know, charm offensive, um, I wouldn't use it uh, exactly, describe it in those terms. 
I talk about this as a partnership where our partner, Canada, is coming and enhancing and working on explaining the relationship and continuing to promote it and develop it. And the prime minister, the various ministers, um, business leaders, um, people from all parties in Canada have come together and come to the United States. Former Prime Minister Mulroney last week. So I would say everybody is working hard to illuminate the importance of the U.S.-Canada relationship. And I think that what Canada is doing is actually working because I believe it's promoting results of governors and business leaders and congressmen and women uh, to stand up and say Canada is important to us. And I think I'm hopeful uh, that the president and his team are, are taking note. If we're still hearing those threats coming from the president, though, of walking away, uh, how effective is the approach that this government is taking, do you think, or, or how, do we, how do we sort of rectify the two? Well, it's, it, in some ways, it's kind of weird in that I would say the U.S.-Canada relationship is, has never been better when we're sitting here talking to governors, uh, especially two-thirds of the governors know that the number one export market is Canada. When we're talking to business and community leaders, average Americans historically on a poll of countries place Canada number one of the countries that they love the most and the people that they love the most. And so then you have the U.S. administration who's doing things on, uh, on immigration, which is impacting Canada, on climate change, which is impacting our relationship, and most importantly, on trade. So you have this jarring of going uh, both ways. I'm hopeful that the administration uh, lends an ear to all of the good that that's happened with our U.S.-Canada relationship and all the good that I think the Canadians are doing are telling the story. And before we go, I wanted to ask you, though, if you, you know, you were asked for your, if you were asked for your advice, what could we be doing, what could the government be doing more? What more could they be doing in addition to the approach they've already taken? What would your advice be? So th there are a couple of things. And uh, look, first of all, it's beyond me to give advice to the Canadian government. But, you know, to continue to work on enhancing the relationship, uh, I would I would go directly to the American people. The term NAFTA is a toxic term, and I would leave that term and put it aside and not talk about it. I talk about the importance of the overall U.S.-Canada relationship um, that runs the full gambit of international cooperation, international military protection of North America and NATO, what we do in helping those that are disadvantaged around the world, what we've done together diplomatically, where we are as neighbors. I'd invite more and more Americans to come up and see Canada. What an amazingly beautiful country, easy travel for most Americans, and to come and visit and experience Canada. I would also work on changing this name, NAFTA. I, I just, I, I think that uh, unfortunately, it's become a political punching bag of sorts. And if we can replace that name with something else, that we wouldn't get stuck on it because it, it, at the base level, uh, the president used that as a toxic term uh, to get votes out in, in the election. And so um, that, those are the things I focus on. I'd also say we have a very strong energy relationship and I continue to look at that energy relationship uh, all across the board to you know, find ways to further integrate and work together on providing energy in North America and protecting ourselves from the needs of buying it elsewhere in the world. Okay, we have to leave it there. I appreciate your time, Mr. Heyman. Pleasure.
The Islamic State has been defeated in northern Syria, but the bloodshed hasn't come to an end. Two weeks ago, Turkey launched an offensive against Kurdish forces in Afrin. The American-trained and armed fighters helped defeat ISIS, but now the Kurds control a significant region south of the Turkish border. They want an autonomous state, and that's something Turkey won't stand for. Joining me now is Turkey's ambassador to Canada, Selçuk Unal. Ambassador, pleasure to have you on the show. Thank Thanks you. for joining us. Thank you. Can you explain to me and our viewers why Turkey launched this offensive in the first place? Well, like last year, we have done something similar against Daesh. Uh, this year also, oh, we uh, made an uh, operation against uh, an organization that we call a terrorist organization, YPG or PYD. Uh, according to us, they are the sister organization of the PKK, which is a terror organization and it's by all, including Canada. Uh, and these people are just their uh, sister organization. So we have been telling and calling to all the international community that this group should not be uh, around at our borders. Because just last year we have lost uh, 316 uh, civilians in 700 uh, mortar fires you know, fired by these guys or, or Daesh in the region. So we decided to conduct an operation against both terror organizations, not only the uh, one Syrian Kurdish uh, group, which is called the terror organization as PYG, uh, but also Daesh as well. So was this offensive directed then, you know, is it about Kurdish autonomy or is it about uh, terrorism? No, we don't have... Uh, Do you have a problem with Kurdish autonomy? Uh, no, we don't have any problem with the Kurdish people or Kurdish descent. We have our Kurdish descent citizens in our country. We have had good relations with the uh, Iraqi Kurdish regional government. Uh, we also have good relations with other 11 Syrian Kurdish uh, political parties operating in Syria. Uh, but this one, because it's a sister organization of the PKK, and this is not only called by us, there are so many U.S. and other uh, official and academic views uh, labeling them as such, uh, because they have been, you know, fighting against our civilians at the border. Uh, that's the reason of the, you know, call uh, for action. I'm glad you brought up civilians because there's a statement from the Canadian government uh, last week. Uh, I'll just read part of it to you. Canada recognizes Turkey's legitimate security concerns. However, we urge restraint and call for every possible effort to be made to protect civilians and fully respect international humanitarian law. Yes. What's your response to that? Well, our response is that, first of all, as uh, the statement said, we are uh, doing this operation uh, for our national uh, security. Uh, and uh, we are doing it uh, within the framework of the UN Security Council resolutions or UN Charter uh, to the right of self-defense. Secondly, we also would like to know, uh, we'd like to know everyone to know that this is not against the Kurds, and every measure is taken care of for the you know uh, possible or to prevent uh, possible civilian uh, casualties. But there so, will be casualties. Well, will so far we did not recognize any. Actually, it's the 14th day of the operation. And the reason why it's going slowly is our utmost care uh, for the possible civilian uh, casualties. Of some course, news outlets are reporting, though, that there have been some casualties, and they're saying 16,000 civilians have been displaced. Well, I don't think so, because... Uh, are you saying that's inaccurate? Yes. Uh, in the meantime, the PKK or PYD, they're also uh, mastering a propaganda campaign, 
and showing with the word of fake news or tweets uh, as if uh, there are many civilian casualties. But we have also announced that some of them have been from the past violences that the Syrian regime has done or some other else done in Aleppo, in other parts of Syria or Iraq. And this so is also well documented. So that I'm clear, though, are you saying that there, that that the Turkish uh, government has not caused the displacement of any civilians? Uh, as far as we know, no, because uh, we are closing to the Afrin, and we are calling everybody, uh, if any civilians around, to vacate the areas of operation. Uh, but this is not something that we are really causing by entering. Actually, we have so far uh, liberated uh, 12 or 15 uh, villages from this organization or Daesh uh, and we are co continuing the humanitarian uh, assistance in those areas to those civilians. Let me ask about how far uh, your government is prepared to go in this in this offensive. Of course we mentioned off the top there that that a number of these forces are armed and and trained by the US. Uh, there are still US forces there as well. Do you anticipate that it will move into that region? Well, uh, actually, on the west of Euphrates River, there is no, as they have also announced, there is no U.S. Uh, presence, military presence, and uh, also the Russians' presence has been uh, vacated. Now, what we have been promised from the very uh, start of the war against Daesh, which we are a part of this coalition, is there won't be any places for terror organizations at the border. This promise was not fulfilled. Then by we were, whom? Uh, by our allies. I mean, uh, by uh, one by particular US. ally. The U.S. Uh, and. On the western uh, side of the Euroface, we were also promised at uh, President Obama level that there won't be any, you know, PKK, PYD related forces, but there are. So that's why uh, we will continue the operation until and uh, the whole uh, terror threat, be it PKK or uh, Daesh, will be eliminated in that area. Is it worth, and we've only got a minute left, but yes. is, it, is it worth jeopardizing your relationship with the U.S. and other allies in NATO? Is it, is it fair to characterize that relationship as, as fraught over this issue? We don't want to jeopardize any relation with any NATO ally. Turkey is a staunch NATO ally. But we also have been calling all NATO allies that even though after the Daesh was defeated, why uh, some NATO allies have been arming this organization with so many sophisticated weapons, uh, more than 5,000 uh, trucks of sophisticated weapons, including anti-aircraft and anti-tank weapons, even though Daesh didn't have any tanks or planes. So this is also a question that I think we should also uh, think of. Okay, sir, I have to leave it there, but I appreciate you joining us today. Thank you very much. I'm Vashi Capellos. Thanks for listening to the West Block podcast. For more, you can head to our website, thewestblock.ca. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter, even Instagram. And tune in again next week for another West Block podcast.